my name's John, and um, we're, this week we're, we're at week four in a series of talks um, based in a book in the Bible called Hebrews. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you might want to open it up there. But if you've, if you've just arrived and you've missed the previous ones, don't worry. I'll try and fill you in on some of the earlier stuff as we go. Um, but at the same time, it's well worth catching the previous talks online at the, at the website if you, ha- if you have time. But just as a bit of a micro recap, um, each week as we've been looking at various chapters of Hebrews, we've, we've kind of summarized the whole book with these three questions, what, why, and how. And so firstly, what, what, is, what is Hebrews, what is this book saying? Well, it's essentially saying Jesus is, is more valuable than anything else. And why, why is the writer saying that? Well, they, they, they were saying it to encourage the reader to keep pursuing Jesus no matter what you face. And how, how, how do they do that? The way they do it is they, they keep comparing Jesus to anything else that we might be tempted to turn back to. And so on the first week, you, you might remember, we looked at how Jesus, in comparison, is the best revelation. And then week two, Susie reminded us that Jesus is the best source of rest. Only in Jesus do we find true fulfillment and peace. And then week three, Jesus is the best representative. The idea that in the person of Jesus, we have um, a perfect mediator. So Jesus is the best revelation, rest, representative, and week four, covenant. So I know it should have begun with R, shouldn't it? Um, But uh, in in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6, it says, "Um, the covenant of which he is mediator is is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, as we've been going through this book, Hebrews, at various points we've had to stop and kind of clarify some of the words, the terms, the characters in this book. Things like, you know, priests and talks about sacrifices and characters like Abraham and Melchizedek. That was a good one last week. Um, and that, it was all stuff that would have made sense to the original readers who were first century Jews. Um, but it needs a little bit more interpreting for our 21st century Western ears. And and one example of that is this word, covenant. What exactly is a covenant? Why is it important? Well, to illustrate a a story, I remember shortly after my first date with Abby, um, who's now my wife, it was early days. We'd met twice at this point, and it was all very exciting. And, you know, where is this heading? Where is it going? I wonder how she feels about me. Um, Anyway... Before the second date, a parcel arrived in the post, and it was from Abby. And I was like, "Wow, this is intriguing." And so I opened this parcel, um, and to, to, to put, and it had the following contents: one fairly fairly lengthy handwritten letter, um, one mixtape. Do you remember mixtapes <laughs> with some dodgy music on it, <laughs> and one book? on Christian dating. And I was like, wow. (laughs) She's keen. Um, At the time, if I'm honest, it was a little bit unnerving. (laughs) But essentially, it was my first experience of of what has since become a pattern in our relationship. And that is, whilst I'm still figuring out what's going on, she's already clocked onto it. She knows where it's going. (laughs) And it really struck me at the time that 
you know, in, in contrast to sort of like the dating scene that I had seen around me, she wasn't up for playing games. She was basically saying, you know, I don't know what kind of relationship, what kind of person you're looking for, but this is who I am, and this is what I'm, this is, this is the relationship that I'm looking for. And there was something that was actually, well, obviously there was something that was attractive about that to me. It was refreshing, this openness. And it reminds, as I was reflecting, it reminds me of a sermon that Nige did a while ago where he said there comes a point in any relationship where you have to have a DTR conversation, a define the relationship conversation. And, uh, and in different types of relationship, this has to happen. You know, whether it's two businesses getting to a point where they have to sign a contract together or you and your employer doing the same or you when you get a new puppy and you have to establish like the sleeping arrangements of, you know, that's where you're going to sleep. There comes to a point where the relationship needs defining. And this word covenant, essentially that's what a covenant does. A covenant is a means of defining the terms of a relationship, how you want things to work between parties. And so it's kind of a, a bit of a contract, um, like a trust or a will, but it's, but it's also, it's more than that. A, a covenant is about, it's more human, it's about promise and trust. It's like a heart contract, a heart promise. And, and, and of course, the most important covenant that we get to enter into our lives is with God. But that is also the one that many of us find hardest to define the terms of. Um, and I don't know if you've ever asked, you know, if you've ever asked somebody either inside or outside the church, what is, how would you define your relationship with God? What's your relationship with God like? You rarely get a short answer to that question. It's complicated. And, um, you know, last week I was, I was chatting to a guy in a shop and um, brief conversation, but I asked him, oh, do you, have you got a faith? Do you know God? And, you know, that's a question that I've, I've probably asked people in those kind of situations many times before. And this guy's response was very consistent with, in my experience, the overwhelming majority of people who say, you know, have I got a relationship with God? Yeah, I don't know, maybe. I like to think so. So often, it doesn't seem like there's a great sense of clarity and certainly no sort of commitment or anything that sounds like a real relationship. And that's often not experience outside the church, but even inside the church, I think many of us who define ourselves as Christians, we find that our, our commitment to him can kind of ebb and flow depending on our circumstances. And it might be that you're here today and your relationship with God doesn't feel all that clear to you right now. But if that's the case, I'm glad you're here because this book contains the most incredible news. And that is that even if we're not sure about the type of relationship that we have with God, he is really clear about the kind of relationship that he wants with us. In fact, you could say that, you know, this whole book, the Bible, in one sense, is the story of that relationship, of that covenant between God and his people. The word, you know, we say New Testament and Old Testament. The word, Latin word, testamentum, is the same word as it means covenant. And so one way of looking at this book is it's, it's all about that story of that relationship between God and his people. I saw another pastor um, once sort of summarize the whole of the Bible story with this really simple diagram like this kind of narrative arc should come up on the screen. He said from, so basically the story of the Bible goes from creation to decreation and then culminates in recreation. That's kind of like the story of the Bible. And this idea of covenant kind of 
it, it follows the same curve. At the start of the Bible, God establishes a covenant, a relationship with his people, the old covenant. But time and time again, the people step outside of that covenant. They break the terms of it. The relationship is broken, decreation. But the major plot twist is that somehow God carries out a work of recreation to reconcile us to him and to establish a new relationship, a new covenant through the person of Jesus. And this is the point that that the writer of Hebrews makes quite a bit in chapters 8, 9, 10. In verse 9... Chapter 9, verse 15, he says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And he said this because to the original audience, the original readers, they were living in... um they were living in the, in, in the context of the new covenant phase of the story, at that end, that end of the chart. But they had grown up being extremely familiar with what had, all that had happened before. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they knew the ups and downs of that story. And the writer of Hebrews was encouraging them, look, in light of all of that, you don't want to go back down. You don't want to go back to where you've come from. This new relationship that you have with Jesus is so much better than anything we've ever had before. And this was an encouragement that they really needed at that time because, because they had begun to experience something that is a reality that we might recognize. And that is that, that when you start to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that your life necessarily gets totally easy and all the problems go away, does it? And that was their experience. They were like, so I have this new relationship with God through Jesus, but that hasn't changed the fact that, that my job is hard that my chariot has failed its MOT, that my um, daughter is, teenage daughter is hanging around with that Samaritan boy that I don't like the look of, that my boss has now laid me off because I'm a Christian. My kids are getting bullied because of that too. And in fact, it's getting more serious. There are threats of violence and threats of imprisonment. Now, by the way, some of those examples aren't actually in the Bible. I just sort of made them up to create an illustrative picture. But but we, what we do know is that they were facing persecution. They were facing tough times. And they were beginning to wonder, maybe we should forget about this new relationship with Jesus and go back to where we came from, to the old way of practicing faith. And that sort of mindset might be familiar to some of us. You know, we probably recognize, don't we, that, that following Jesus, making that decision, doesn't mean that your life necessarily gets easier instantaneously. And Jesus warned us that, that in this life we, re, we will face trials. And he was right. But it's often those trials that wobble us most. Those are the times that leave us asking those kind of questions. Like, you know, is Christianity really the best, the best way? And what is it about the Christian faith that's better than pursuing no faith at all or some other faith? You know, maybe if I'd have been born up and raised in another culture, perhaps I would have a different religion. And would my life really be so different if it wasn't centered around Jesus. And you know, you might have asked questions like that before. And the writer is essentially answering all of those questions by saying, listen, listen. And uh, he emphasizes this in chapter eight, isn't it? The covenant of which Jesus, he is mediator, is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. It's based on better promises. 
One of the things that we've noticed as we've looked through this book in the last few weeks is that the author repeatedly quotes chunks of the Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus was the fulfillment of promises that God had made centuries before, like how, how, how Nigel explained um, earlier with that passage from Isaiah. And that's what he can, if you look at chapter 8, that's what the writer continues to do. Um, he, he quotes a passage that's from a book in the Bible called Jeremiah in the Old Testament that was written 600 years before. So chapter 8, verse 8, um, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. And then it continues further down to describe the covenant. It says, I will put my laws in their minds and I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And so what's really interesting is that when this was first written back in, in Jeremiah, somewhere around here, it was written at... at at the low point of that story, that curve. It was written at the low point. It was written at a point where the nation of Israel had basically led itself into destruction by this succession of terrible kings who had, who had worshipped other gods. They'd rejected God's guidance um, and they'd been conquered and they'd lost their sovereignty, they'd lost their land. And so their, their relationship with, with God at that point in the story was broken. It was like a marriage that was beyond repair. But it was in the pit of that experience that God made these, these incredible promises. This prophecy in Jeremiah was like a, like a husband turning to his wife in, in, like the, in the attorney's or the lawyer's uh, office just about to, to sign the divorce paper and saying, actually, here's an engagement ring. Let's get married again. That's the kind of promise it was. It was incredible. God was saying, it's not over. And I'm going to establish a new covenant, a new relationship with you. And he said, and it's, imagine what it's going to look like. Imagine a relationship with me where you won't just know stuff about me. You'll actually know me. You won't just learn things about me. You'll actually learn from me. And my laws, my will, it won't just be written down in a book. It'll be written on your hearts and in your minds. It will be in you. It's like I'm, I'm going to be in you. Imagine a relationship of that close proximity. And it will be a time where not just the elite people, not just the priests and the prophets and the kings and the people who stand on a stage with the book in their hands who get to know me. It will be a time when everybody will know me, where everybody gets to play. Imagine a relationship like that. And the thing that made this promise so incredible was that it was, it was God who was making this promise because the covenant relationship at that point had failed for one reason, and that was humanity. The one thing that had consistently messed up the relationship between God and his people was humanity. Time and time again, they had demonstrated that they were, they were okay at entering into a covenant, okay at entering into a relationship with God, but they couldn't uphold and honor it. They couldn't remain faithful to God. They couldn't remain obedient to him. They lacked commitment and trust. And so the problem was never God. The problem was never the covenant itself. The persistent deal breaker was the sinfulness of humanity. And so the thing that made this, this promise, well, for me, 
particularly incredible is that at the very end, um, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, at the very end of this promise, it says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So, you know, that problem, like the problem, the thing that has basically plagued our relationship since, since the beginning, since that terrible day in the Garden of Eden, I'm going to overcome that. And that was the promise that Jeremiah made that had been simmering away effectively for 600 years. And the writer of Hebrews quotes that promise to say, that has now been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And what's more, you can bank everything. You can bank your whole life on that promise because, he continues, because it's based on something incredible. It's based on a better sacrifice. Remember um, how I said that Hebrews contains some slightly strange language? Well, we're going to go there now into chapter 9, verse 13. It talks about sacrifice. It says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Right? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? Now, if, if you've been coming to church for a while, um, you might not have noticed as I read that, that there were a whole bunch of like strange and unusual words that suddenly emerged in this story. Sacrifices, blood, killing animals, being unclean. And if you're new and you just heard that, you're probably thinking, what have I just walked into? What is he going on about? These people lure me in with smiles and donuts, and then they start talking about blood and guts. What is going on? Um, I remember um, John Wimber, who, who led the, the vineyard movement in the 80s and 90s, he, he used to tell this story of the first time that he went to church when he started to explore faith. And a greeter, like someone from the Connect team, came bounding over to him and asked him, brother, have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? And um, we've sort of since banned the Connect team from using that line because we're not sure it's that helpful. But, but 2,000 years ago, both in the story of the Bible and the historical context of the ancient world, sacrifices were a big part of establishing covenants and defining relationships. So as you go through in Genesis and in Exodus, there are stories of people like Abraham and Noah and, and lots of examples of covenants between God and his people being ceremonially recognized through animal sacrifices. And I know that sounds a little bit strange perhaps to us, even barbaric. Um, you know, it's not like we don't sign a new mortgage and then celebrate by killing a dove. Or we, say, we don't say like, oh honey, sorry, I forgot the anniversary. I've chopped the guinea pig in half to say sorry, we don't... <laughs> We tend to go more down the bunch of flowers route. <laughs> but for them, these sacrifices contained layers of meaning. Sacrificing something valuable was a means of, of expressing value and commitment to God. But it was also kind of conversely, it was a way of emphasizing and recognizing that God values us. He values enough, he values us enough to provide us with the thing that we sacrifice to him. And so it was kind of also an expression of trust of saying, I can afford to sacrifice this thing to you because I know that you value me enough to provide for everything that I need. There were also a recognition of the 
of the life-death consequence of, of choosing our own sinful desires over God's will. As I said, from the Garden of Eden onwards, there was this persistent theme in the Bible that, that human sinfulness leads us on a path towards death. It's the thing that, that, that forces us out of, out of covenant relationship with God, where life is, towards death. And that's something that can't trivially be undone. And so it's kind of slightly mysterious how this works. But what's evident is that for us to be restored from death to life, the sacrifice must go from life to death to reciprocate and acknowledge the consequence of that. And so sacrifices were also a means of, of asking for forgiveness and asking God to cleanse and purify humanity from our sins. And it was all a really serious business. There are large chunks of the Old Testament spelling out the rules and the regulations for, for how and when people were supposed to make sacrifices. And this is a point that the, that the writer of Hebrews um, reminds, intentionally reminds the readers of. In chapter 9, verse 18... We're told um, the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. And um, I'll spare you the next bit because then it then describes how Moses used to sprinkle all the ceremonial equipment in the temple with what he described as the blood of the covenant. It's a little bit gruesome. Before summarizing, he said, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, it says, there's no forgiveness. And the point that the writer was making here, I think, is that humanity's persistent sinfulness is a serious business. It fractures our relationship with God. And because of that, without these sacrifices, for the, for the Jewish people, without these sacrifices, their relationship with God couldn't have been initiated or maintained. And that's why the old covenant had to be sustained with, with, with these sacrifices. And in, in, in chapter 10, it explains how that happened. It says, you know, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, it continues... But when this priest, and it's talking about Jesus here, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It says through, through Jesus' death on a cross, and his subsequent resurrection, Jesus has won a victory over his enemies of sin and death. And in doing so, he has eliminated the need for all these ongoing sacrifices. And this was, this was good news for them. It was brilliant news if you were a goat. <laughs> but it's also important for us 
today. Um, myself, personally, I grew up um, with, a, in a, with a Catholic background, and so I remember I used to go to confession with my mum, and confession is where you, 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 know, you confess your sins to God and you, and you ask for God's forgiveness. And this one time, I went to confession with my mum on a winter's night, and we came back out again, and when we came out, there had been fresh snowfall, and the whole world was white. And it was, it was as though God had sent the snow to remind us that we had been washed pure. And it was, it was a really profound experience. And I remember, and I remember my mum squeezed my hand and she said, let's go home and let's not do anything wrong for as long as we can. Let's stay like this. <laughs> but of course, we knew that in time we would fail in every way to live a perfect life. And growing up, when it came to sin and forgiveness, I always felt as though I was in this cycle of, of like being dirty and, 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 and in God's bad books and then, and then doing something to kind of make it back up to him, to get clean. And I would go over and over through this cycle. And it wasn't until years later, as an adult, when I actually started to read the Bible and reconsider Jesus, that I came to understand that that once we enter into relationship with him, once we receive his forgiveness at the foot of the cross, we are made pure, not based on our perfection, but on his. And so we don't need to make sacrifices over and over again to, make, to, to stay pure. Yes, there will be times where we have to confess and repent and ask for his forgiveness. That's part of our relationship with him because we're not perfect. But there is nothing that we can ever do to, to make it up to him. There's nothing, no sacrifice we can pay to sort of like pay it back. It doesn't work like that. Our good deeds can't make us clean again. But nor do they need to because his one-time sacrifice has made us pure in a way that can't be undone by sin. And so the only sacrifice that the New Testament, the New Covenant requires us to make is what it calls a living sacrifice, where it says live your life in response to all that he has done for you as a living sacrifice to him. And that's where the writer of Hebrews kind of encourages us to move on to in chapter 10, verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, a new confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings you know I don't know what your um, relationship with God is like right now this morning for some of you it might be you might be in a place where your relationship with God doesn't seem clear or it might be that you're here and, and feelings of, of shame or moments of failure have left you uncertain about where you stand with God. And to some extent, we all face those kind of moments or feelings. There are times where we, where we all doubt the way we feel about Jesus or we doubt the way that he feels about us. There are moments where perhaps all of us at times are tempted to look back behind us. But when we feel that way, Jesus says... Remember how I feel about you. Look to me and remember how I feel about you. 
That's why we did what we did earlier when we celebrated the Lord's Supper. That's why that one of the last things that Jesus did before he faced death on the cross was he, he gave us the Lord's Supper and he said, you, you, you're gonna ha- if you want to have this relationship, you're going to need to remember what I did for you, to know how I feel about you. And he said, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this regularly. To have this relationship, you're going to need to turn your face towards the cross and remind yourself how I feel about you. That's what Jesus said. Years ago, my dad had a really bad car crash. And my sister was in the car at the time, and he, he, he pulled out on this country lane, and at 60 miles an hour, a car just came in to the side of them, and incredibly, no serious injuries. Um, but a few days later, my dad went to the police compound to have a look, to see the car. And the policeman, a policeman, I think, I remember said something like, I didn't ever expect to see the person who was driving this car. And my dad said, when he, when he saw this mangled pile of metal, he just burst into tears immediately. Because he realized that he had made a mistake that should, could have cost them their lives. And it was only when he turned his face to survey the wreckage that he began to understand how incredible it was that the car had somehow absorbed the impact and they had got to walk away alive. And in the same way as the, the car was crushed so that we might live, in the same way Jesus says, there's going to be times where you're going to need to turn your face towards the wreckage of the, of the cross. It's not pleasant, it's, it's, it's bloody, but you have to see it. You have to remind yourself that my body was broken for you, that my blood was shed for you, so that you might remember I was crushed so that you might live. I absorbed the impact of the sins of the world so that the world might live. I remember when, back when Abby sent me that parcel, she kind of was really putting herself out there to do that. She made herself vulnerable, but her vulnerability made it pretty clear how she felt. And in the same way, Jesus' vulnerability on the cross, it tells us everything that we need to know about the way that he feels about us. You might be here and you might not be sure about how you feel about God, but God is utterly clear about how he feels about you. And so at the start, I joked about how this sermon topic didn't begin with the letter R, but it could have done. It could have been about how Jesus is the best reconciliation or recreation or resurrection or restoration or redemption. So if you want a letter with R, just take your pick, there's loads. But the point is, Jesus is is all of it. He's all of it. But for me, perhaps the word most of all today is his relationship. Jesus' close friend, John, he summed it up by saying, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He has put it all out there. He held nothing back to demonstrate how much he wants that relationship with us. And so how do we respond to that? Well, how do you respond when somebody saves your life to know you? Well, you know, about a year after that car crash, 
My dad went with my, went with my sister to buy her first ever car she'd saved up, and so he went out to help her buy the car. And of course, of course, of course, they came back with exactly the same model of car. What other car would you choose than the one that saved your lives? And in the same way, when we remember what God has done for us, we can only respond by sharing that with other people and encouraging them to do the same with a greater level of confidence. That's why it says in chapter 10, so let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So that's the point that we've got to. Next week, Ben's gonna um, pick up where we're, where, where we're leaving off. Um, and he'll sort of like be gathering up all of these things and, and spurring us forward as we move forward together. But for now, um, I think it'd be, it's a good opportunity for, for all of us to just reflect for a moment on our relationship with God, our covenant. So as we do that, why don't we, um, if you're able, let's stand together.